my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Julie Mackinnon. Julie Mackinnon is a writer, editor, and former Beijing bureau chief for the Los Angeles Times. She has spent she has spent 22 years as a journalist with the Washington Post, the International New York Times, and the Los Angeles Times. In 2016 and 17, she was a John S. Knight Journalism Fellow in Media Innovation at Stanford University. Please give a very, very warm welcome to Ms. Julie Mackinnon. Thank you all for coming tonight. This is such a wonderful, large crowd and um, on a Thursday night. This is a huge topic. Is China prepared to lead the global economy? It's so big, I don't know that we are going to be able to answer that in the next hour, but we are going to try mightily, and we are going to try the way you eat an elephant, which is one bite at a time. And we are going to share some statistics, we're going to share some stories, we're going to have some predictions, and hopefully uh, we'll come out a little bit more knowledgeable about this big topic. So we're going to chat for about 40 minutes up here, and then we're going to open it up to your questions. So uh, first, let me introduce our panelists. Uh, starting right here on my right, we have Christopher Tang, a native of Hong Kong and a professor of business administration at UCLA's Anderson School. Uh, Chris is an expert on global supply chain management retail operations, social innovation, and he's been a consultant for HP, IBM, Nestle, and other companies. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Uh, next, we have Yiwen Li. Um, Yiwen is a native of China, and she's a director of global strategy and business development at the healthcare company Nant Health. She's also the author of a best-selling book in China called Make the World Your Playground. Welcome, Yuan. <laughs> Next, we have Jerry Nicholsberg. Um, Jerry is professor of e economics and director of the UCLA Anderson Forecast. And Jerry's connection with China goes back many years to the 1990s when he uh, worked in China with McDonnell Douglas. And Jerry's now teaching on Asian economies, and he leads students on trips to China. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Welcome. Thank you. And last but certainly not least, we have Ray Shreja, who is a UC San Diego political economist. She's also native of China. She's interested in China's economic history, the selection of politicians in China, and education policy in China. Welcome. So just to get a sense of the audience, can I just see a show of hands? How many people here have been to China, work with China. Okay, we've got maybe 40% of hands up, mm -hmm. so that's great. We have some experts in the audience. <laughs> um, we should trade places with them. Yeah, anyone want to come up here? Um, so let's start with Jerry, just to set the table a little bit and uh, give us some historical perspective on China's economy, where it has been, uh, maybe where it was about 40 years ago and where it is now. It's been 2018 will mark the 40-year anniversary of China's opening and reform. And uh, certainly it's come a long way since then. So Jerry, why don't you kick us off with a little perspective? Sure. So I'll, I'll try and take the first small bite of that elephant. Okay. <laughs> um, so so I in China, they just had the 19th Party Congress with... Uh, Xi Jinping thought being put up in the Communist Party constitution. And, you know, this is, this is a big deal. This is like a papal encyclical. This, this is what everyone in China really has to believe. And, and part of that is a projection of China out into the world as, as, as a world power, as a world economic power. And, and so that's our topic tonight. Uh, and, and so you might ask, well, why do you have to, you know, really elevate this to that kind of level and put it in the Communist Party uh, constitution? And I think you've got to go kind of way back in Chinese history. And of course, China has this very long history, which, uh, which they're aware of, but maybe we're not so aware of. Um, and, and you can go back to the early Ming dynasty. So this is going to be, uh, what, so it's the 14th century. Uh, where the Ming had defeated the Mongols 
And they were arguably the largest economy in the world. They had the best navy in the world. And some of you may have uh, you know, read about uh, Zheng He's uh, uh, sometimes mythical, but, but often truthful um, voyages of, of exploration. I mean, this, this was the big, powerful country in the world. And that kind of continued, but the Ming fell and the Qing dynasty uh, came in, but still really powerful. And you get into, in, in fact, in the early part of the 19th century, uh, China was, the Chinese economy was so vibrant and so rich that the British ran out of silver to buy Chinese goods. And that's where, where you got into, well, you know, if you don't have uh, anything that the Chinese want, and kind of Britain really didn't, uh, but you need to create a demand for your goods, what do you sell them? You sell them drugs, and that was the start of the opium, uh, the era of opium in China. And that really started, uh, you know, the Chinese very much, uh, very much underestimated the power of Europe, and this was the age of imperialism, and you get this century of China being beaten up uh, and, and, and really kind of impoverished by European powers, and later Japan uh, jumped into the fray. Uh, and, and so we don't know much about this, but, um, but right, everyone in China learns about this. And, um, it's in our history book. Yeah, yeah and, and it's prominent. When I you know, teach about business in China, one of the things I say, you have to understand that your counterparty knows this, and it's important to them. So October 1949, People's Republic of China is formed, and Mao Zedong kicks all the foreigners out. Right? China seals itself off, uh, and, and this is a real reaction. Get those evil foreigners out of here. Uh, but so China is isolated, and it goes through this period. So before, when China, you know, China was the largest economy in the world, it goes through this period of stagnation, kind of even worse because there were big mistakes like the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward. Uh, but uh, you, you get to, so Mao dies in 1976, and you start in 1978, Deng Xiaoping is sort of in ascendancy. And, um, and by the early 80s, China was the largest economy uh, way back when. Now is only 3% of the world economy. So it's, it, it's, maybe it hasn't shrunk, but everybody else grew. Mm -hmm. and, and it didn't, and it's still very much a peasant economy. And so Deng Xiaoping, so he's the second guy who got put into the Constitution, but he didn't get thought, he got theory in there. So a little bit below. Uh, but his was, okay, so now we've taken care of these foreigners. But if we're going to keep them at bay, we have to get rich. We have to have wealth to do that. And that's kind of the reforms. Uh, but I think that we don't want to be mistaken that they became a capitalist economy. They did not. They used capitalist market signals, but not, a, not really a capitalist economy in, in any real sense. And, and, and kind of but grew very, very rapidly to now where, uh, you know, international trade, uh, you have the U.S. Uh, about 35, uh, 3.5 trillion and China about 3.8 trillion, depending on how you measure it. Chinese GDP may be a little larger than the U.S. per capita, certainly not, it's way behind, but maybe a little larger than the U.S., but kind of neck and neck as, as the two big economies. And, um, uh, and, and so that era is kind of over with. And, and now we get up to, again, Xi Jinping thought, which is, okay, we, we took care of, uh, of all of these foreigners dominating our economy, and now we're wealthy enough. Now the third step, the Xi Jinping era, is going to be to project out and, and really lead the world economy, which is the, the subject today. But I think that background is really important as to what is, is driving this um, you know, they want to make China great again, like in the early Ming when they were <laughs> dominant. And, uh, and they have inscribed that in the most important constitution in China, which is the, the constitution of the Chinese Communist Party. Right. So we've gone in 40 years from China being at 3% of the global economy to being 
uh, maybe 15% now, mm -hmm. but in terms of GDP per um, uh, purchasing power basis, about equal with the U.S. Yeah. Um, trade being about exceeding equal. the U.S. So we've really, in 40 years, things have really shifted. And we hear so many of these big numbers about China and the U.S., trillions of dollars in trade and GDP, and it's a little bit hard to wrap our heads around. But when I was in China, one of the things that always amazed me was my friends just telling me how much in their lifetime the economy had changed. And I know Yuan um, and Ray Shui can probably share some personal stories of just their families or their neighborhoods, how something shifted. Maybe you can just talk about that for a second. Sure. Thank you, Julie. Um, hi, I'm Yuan. Very happy to be here. Um, I was made in China. Um, <laughs> that's my typical opening. Uh, I was made in China in 1984, uh, to be exact. So, uh, people my generation are generally referred to as Balingho, which means uh, post-80s. We were born um, after 1980s. And this generation has been fortunate to experience the tail end of the central plan economy and witnessed introduction of the reform, economic reform and opening up policy um, and witness its impact in totality. Um, so I'm a foodie. I'm going to talk about food. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that to be a foodie is not fun uh, in the central plan economy. <laughs> um, so growing up, my family has something called liang piao, which means uh, food stamps. It's a piece of paper that you can have to exchange for food. Because back in the 1970s, 80s, China has so limited supply for material goods. To have money alone is not enough to, to exchange for food. You have to have that piece of paper. You have to have rice stamp for rice, uh, oil stamp for oil. Um, and that stamp system expands to other areas of your life. You have clothing stamp, bicycle stamp, uh, soap stamp even. Um, and as Jerry said, um, since 1978, China economy started to open up. The market force has been uh, being in introduced. Foreign investment is allowed along with foreign business. So things start to change uh, when I was in my teens. I remember when I was 12, uh, it was the first time I was in McDonald's. After standing in line for five hours in the cold <laughs> winter night to taste my first fried chicken, uh, which I'm not sure it was the wait, <laughs> but <laughs> along with McDonald's, KFC, KFC came, uh, Pizza Hut came. Um, I was born in a city by the name of Wuhan. It's in the middle of China. has eight million people, though no one knows. Um, so. <laughs> For the next one year, um, every time we go to this western chain of restaurants, you have to wait for a couple hours, and it, it was almost like a ritual, like a ceremony. It perceived as a privilege to go to those western chains. So that's in the mid-1990s, in my teens. Then two decades later, pass, pass forward, um, not only all major chains like Starbucks and you know your McDonald's, we don't need to mention that again, um, has been present in China for years. There's no lack of luxury eateries or Michelin three-star restaurants. So now if you take your boyfriend or girlfriend on a date to McDonald's, you probably would never see them again, <laughs> ever. Um, so you know, that's a little story about food that I want to share. And also, um, I left China about 10 years ago to uh, go to Europe to study. Um, I go back to China about once a year. And every time I go back to China, it's, it's even hard to recognize the street that I grew, up on, I grew up on. There's always skyscrapers somewhere. There's always the tallest and the newest building in Beijing, in Shanghai. In my hometown, Wuhan, is a very industrialized city. There are just cranes everywhere until today. Um, we used to see blue sky, now we don't see blue sky anymore. <laughs> That's another change. I'm not sure it's positive. Um, and uh, about also vehicles. Uh, when I grew up, you know, we don't, we don't have a car. Bicycles is the main transportation vehicles in China. You know, until I went to Europe, I, I realized no one really rides bicycles as a transportation vehicle. It's basically for leisure. 
But when I went to school, my, my dad used to bike 10 miles to send me to school for two hours. That's how I went to school for years. And now uh, my family have two cars and my parents complain about traffic all the time, <laughs> like, Ange <laughs> like we Angelinas do here. Um, so I, I guess the bottom line is um, my generation and my parents' generation, even more, when they grew up, they experienced the, the cultural revolution. Mm -hmm. They were what we called in China, Lao Sanjie, the old three generation. I consider my generation very fortunate because we have witnessed the, we didn't really experience planned economy that much, but when my parents grew up during that 10 year cultural revolution time, I don't know how many of you have heard of that, they can only listen to maybe eight songs and watch eight shows on TV and everyone wear the same blue shirt for 10 years. Now you go to China, you, there are all type of music and culture activities. Um, the, most in, the, the most recent popular shows is called China Got Hip Hop. Um, <laughs> so I think just during the past 30 years, we see this tremendous change from extremely limited supply of goods, most materi both material and cultural, to extreme abundance right now. So being very fortunate to be part of that change. Right. So Jerry, help us think about what does it, we, we've seen the uh, impact on individual lives, but you know, thinking about China going forward, how should we think about what it means to lead the global economy? Does it mean having the biggest GDP? Does it mean being the biggest trader? Does it mean having a currency that's accepted around the world? Having power in international institutions like the IMF or the World Bank? Having the biggest market for goods? Being entrepreneurial? Making rules for global trade? How can we think about who is the leader of the global economy? Sure, well, it, it's some of all of those things. Uh, but to try and maybe condense that a, a little bit, um, just selling the most goods doesn't really make you a leader. A leader is someone who is creating the institutions or modifying the institutions of, of international trade. And, and so there are three things that you trade. You trade goods, you trade services, and you trade capital. And uh, the rules for how those are traded between countries uh, have been since 1944 in the first Bretton Woods uh, conference of the United States and the Allies, knowing that, hoping that they were going to win the war, um, it, it's been led by the United States. We were the largest economy. We were the ones who really kind of set the, the stage for the IMF, for the World Bank, the uh, WTO, kind of United Nations, all of the institutions. Uh, so for China to be a leader uh, in the world economy means that they've got to enter some of those. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's what they're trying to do. And, and that's kind of what's institutionalized. So the uh, IAAB, the Asia uh, Infrastructure Bank that, that, that China created, U.S. tried to block this, and the reason for blocking it was, well, we've got the World Bank, and anyway, we set the rules. Um, our trying to block it was a, a total failure, and everybody but the, is like the Paris Accords, everyone but the U.S. is in it. Um, and, uh, and, and so that's part of that. The One Belt, One Road initiative is part of this. Uh, U.S. tried to counter China setting the rules of international trade, particularly in services, which is uh, heavily dependent on intellectual property, and that was TPP. We got out of it, out of TPP, and China said, well, we're all for talking about setting the rules. So they're trying to come in, really, and, and be a leader. They have a real issue when it comes to being a leader in finance, because China has capital controls, and without the free flow of capital, it's pretty hard to be setting the rules for uh, how you trade capital, but, uh, but that's kind of uh, you know, what we're talking about, are those three areas and who, who sets the rules or who has the most influence in setting the rules. Right. Uh, well, even before Donald Trump's ascension in the U.S., I think there's been some reevaluation 
uh, in the US about those rules and whether we've made rules that have benefited us or not. Um, and at the same time, we've seen China um, proposing these new institutions, creating these new institutions. Um, Rachel, maybe you can talk a little bit about what you see as China's goals in doing this and what barriers you see to them maybe gaining trust or influence? Uh, sure. Uh, I'm an economist, so uh, for economists, it does make sense for China to have these initiatives. As you may know, uh, Chinese people save a lot, <laughs> even though you may have this, all these nice stories about uh, the changes in China. Once and that hasn't been changed, I don't know why, that people are still keeping saving. <laughs> they are getting richer and richer, they still keep this capital saving. So you can imagine mm -hmm. there are a lot of savings. Uh, so by simple accounting, right, these savings can either be invested within China or invested uh, abroad. Uh, with the you know, ending of the growth miracle in China, their investment opportunities within China are likely to be reduced. So it definitely makes sense for Chinese government and Chinese firms to go outside for these opportunities. So just give you a number, we can say, think about each year, we have some structural saving surplus, which accounts about two to, two, two to 3% of GDP. Uh, that's a huge amount that could be invested, and these are good opportunities from the Chinese side. Uh, for the partners in these uh, networks, I don't want to sound like someone sent by the Chinese government, <laughs> but <laughs> nevertheless, uh, I think it's from purely economic perspective, it makes sense for those partners to participate. You know, many of these countries do need a lot of infrastructure, and Chinese government and the firms wanted to provide this investment infrastructure. So, so that's maybe one reason you see many countries respond to this kind of initiatives. Uh, but that said, this is a goes beyond the economic issue. So, uh, for example, the one so-called One Belt, One Road initiative, if you follow the news or reports, uh, where does China make a real progress? Uh, you can have a guess which country does China make some progress? What would be a guess? It's Pakistan, right? <laughs> That's, it's because it's clearly a political ally of China for, you know, for from the past to today. When it comes to other countries, then it's less clear, you know, because even though economically maybe makes sense, uh, they, they may not trust the Chinese Communist Party, or maybe they're thinking about, oh, how should we talk to the US when we, when we accept all this uh, investment? So that's, you know, I think China still have a, face a lot of challenge to really make progress in this, uh, in this kind of big initiatives. Maybe you want to just, ex maybe everyone here knows, but do you want to just explain briefly what One Belt, One Road is? Oh. One Belt, One Road is just this big initiative by the, go by the Chinese government try to try to uh, build, you know, link countries, not only including the Chinese neighbors, but also countries like on the coast of Africa, etc., where the government, you know, one thing the Chinese government tr try to do is to provide funds to build infrastructure. That's a big thing. Uh, and which has made some progress in, in you know, mainly in Pakistan, but in other parts of the world. Yeah. Not yeah. Yeah. I would like to uh, add on to, uh, to Rishi's yeah. uh, comments early on. So I think that in terms of China, I think they became rich very quickly. And uh, so they realized that being rich does not earn you the respect. Then, so what does it mean to be a leader? Then they feel that, well, not just pumping money, they need to do something good for other countries as well. So I think one Belt and Road, as Richard pointed out, is trying to build a railroad. There are two routes. One is on land, the other one by sea, the marine time. So the road is trying to reconnect the sea roads uh, 3,000 years ago. So they want to go all the way to Africa. So in the case, that's economic development. To help the, a lot of African countries to build railroad so that they can trade. Because if you go back to the British Empire era, the main reason they, they conquered the world is because of global trade. They invented the steam engine. That was the first step, mm -hmm. the railroad. So the Chinese now is building the railroad all the way to Africa. With the hope that is, so China will actually connect all the way from China all the way to uh, Africa, so all the countries can trade among themselves. That's one. The, and also the maritime route is actually is going through the different routes, all the trade, all the by sea, all the way to, uh, to Europe. So that's one, is to earn the respect using economic development. 
The second one is comets. They realized that they were really uh, the culprits of uh, air and water pollution. So they're aware of that. Mm -hmm. So now, uh, well, given US is uh, out of the Paris treaties. Taking a break. Taking a break. <laughs> Taking a break. <laughs> yes. So now uh, China is saying, well, maybe they can take the lead. Why not? Given you're in big trouble, why not turn it around? Become the leader. So right now, China is actually the largest uh, solar panel manufacturers in the world. And now they're actually building all the electric cars. Mm -hmm. And by 2025, uh, basically, all the cars produced in China will be electric. Mm -hmm. So that is really phenomenal. Yeah, and just to add on, uh, I totally agree. China is taking the lead on on economic, uh, on the environment side. Uh, I think government just committed an investment of 361 billion in alternative energies by the year 2020. Um, yeah, just one and, and one belt, one road. I think within China and outside China is probably the most talked topic. Also because of sheer economy, it involved 60 countries and Chinese gov government. Depending on how you count, I see different statistics would put between three trillion to five trillion into the into the project, which n none project has existed in that scale. Yeah, so l let me kind of jump in on yeah. that because it's not all charity or right. for respect. Yeah, right. uh, China's a resource, relatively resource poor country. And, uh, and, and you were talking about food before. Uh, China's got a serious food problem. It's about the same physical size as the US. The US has 12% arable land. China has 7%. US has 330 million people. China, 1.35 billion people. So you can just see from that, there is a real problem. And they need to trade because, if for no other reason than, uh, than having hungry citizens is not really a recipe for staying in power. Uh, and, uh, and, and so a big part of this, and like the railroad through Pakistan, it, it means that no matter what the US does with the South China Sea or the Straits of Malacca, they can still get resources from Africa. And the, uh, and, and the railroad is going to go into the five Central Asian countries first. They're resource-rich countries that are a little tired of being dominated by Russia. And so to give them an alternative, uh, but it's resources that China, China needs. So, um, you know, so these are really important factors in, in the One Belt, One Road, not just uh, they, they will get kind of that leadership role out of it, but they really need the resources as well. Well, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, clearly the U.S. had a lot of similar policies in the past too, going mm -hmm. out and investing in countries that needed infrastructure, mm -hmm. and we thought that was going to turn out so wonderfully, and that didn't always end up uh, winning us friends and allies. So it'll be interesting to see if China can navigate that very delicate balance. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about entrepreneurship and innovation because that's another thing that I think has distinguished the U.S. economy for many decades and it's a big question I think hanging over the Chinese economy. Is China innovative? Is it entrepreneurial? Um, what excites you about what you see in China? Anything? It's very exciting. Uh, I just returned from China yesterday. so. I hope that I'm coherent. <laughs> uh, so basically, that's, I, I found that uh, the Chinese government is actually encouraging uh, entrepreneurship and innovation. Uh, well, that's one view to look at it. The flip side, I think a lot of uh, citizens may not realize it. The hidden message is that the economy is slowing down. <laughs> that means there are not that many jobs. And actually, the Chinese need to innovate, become entrepreneurs to get the jobs going because the, China, uh, the, the, the labor cost in China is growing rapidly. So even in terms of uh, uh, garments, a lot of Americans did not realize this. Most of the garments are not made in China anymore. It's actually, they make in Bangladesh, mm -hmm. and now actually they move all the way to Ethiopia yeah. and Vietnam, mm -hmm. because the China, Chinese labor cost is not cost competitive. So they need the alternative business model. So what I discover, the really the very inno innovative business model the Chinese entrepreneurs have created is what they call online platforms. 
The biggest online platforms we have observed is Alibaba. It's basically they capture uh, sort of B2B, B2C, C2C, O2O, you name it, they've done it. <laughs> and now the biggest one is end financials. Actually, China is leading, maybe surprising to the audience, on the mobile platforms. In terms of mobile payments, they are the largest mobile payments in the world, of Alipay and WeChat Pay. And also that in terms of the end financials, which is uh, under the umbrella of uh, Alibaba, and actually is one of the first three online banks that is uh, allowed to operate in China. So with the online bank system that integrated with mobile payments and also online insurance, the power uh, of this machine is phenomenal. And then not to mention about WeChat. WeChat is a uh, social media, uh, it's like a WhatsApp or uh, Viber, uh, and actually has one billion users, one billion. So basically, they actually connect to people. What is most surprising about WeChat is that there were over one million apps within the app. The WeChat is an app platform. And within this uh, platform, it allows an individual to set up a micro store within five minutes for free. So go to China, you can use the WeChat Pay, the mobile payments for anything. Even beggars, they beg for money. A lot of time we say, oh, sorry, you have no change. No worries. Can you, say, can you use the cell phone to scam me? They have the QR code. Okay? Yeah. So basically, it's such a civilized way to ask for money. So actually, there are many things they are already leading. And actually, in this particular space, U.S. is actually behind. I think it's so true. WeChat and some of the other mobile payments are an amazing... Uh, convenience in China and when I came back to the United States I felt sort of crippled and going back to the old days having to pull out my credit card to pay for things um, it is quite amazing to like you, I never paid a beggar with WeChat but I did pay someone selling flowers on the street with WeChat and I ordered um, masseuse to come to my house and give me a foot massage. <laughs> you can order someone to clean your house. You can talk to your friends. A lot of companies have corporate channels within WeChat mm -hmm. to facilitate their communication with employees in the field. Um, so it's just amazing. And there's a whole generation of people who never had a traditional bank account, never set up a savings account at Bank of China, but they opened an account with Alibaba um, for Taobao, and now they have an account with Ant. And their entire financial life is tied up with these companies. So imagine if you know, you're a customer of Amazon, and then you opened a savings account kind of with Amazon, and you never opened an account with Citibank or anything like that. Right. Mm -hmm. I would like to add to that is actually the Alibaba, the Alipay payment, which I pay, actually frog the credit cards. Credit cards in China is not an important okay. element. So actually, uh, I also noticed many, many of my female friends in China, they love the mobile payments because they carry the phone, they don't need to carry the wallet because you don't need the wallet mm -hmm. to survive in China. Mm -hmm. That is amazing. And also that in terms of Alibaba, just on November 11th, a uh, few days ago, they have this one-day sale, just like a Black Friday. In one day, they sold 26 billion US dollars of merchandise. In one day, broke the record. So every year, they broke a new record. So basically, it's because of this online ecosystem they have established. Yeah, and I think in China we talk a lot about Wei Chuangxin, which means micro in innovation. If you think about China, people always say China is a copycat economy. I actually don't agree with that because China has al has been in history a source of great inventions. For example, the great four inventions: the campus uh, gunpowder, paper, um, and printing were from China, and it started to decline because of demographics, because the replacement cost of labor was so low, so by bother using technology, um, if you can just add bodies to increase productivity. So that started to decline, and we see that uh, economic rapid development based on cheap labor happening again, um, for the past three decades, but exactly as, as you said, Chris, because China has used up its 
demographic dividend thanks to one-child policy. Um, by the year 2050, China's dependency ratio will become 45%, which will be the, the oldest country in the world. So China has to innovate. And what you can see, th and the innovation start to happen through this micro-invention, which means to increase productivity, to modify, to improve on existing uh, concept, existing product, and existing services. That's exactly what WeChat is. WeChat is a combination of Facebook, Twitter, um, uh, WhatsApp, PayPal, Uber. You know, all of us, you can throw, you know, WeChat can do it all. And Ch China start to copy and make it better. And I think what would lead to another wave of innovation is actually in environment and healthcare, simply because China have to. Bef like whenever my Chinese friend goes to China, I always tell them to do three things. Download WeChat, uh, buy a mask when you uh, walk in, in Beijing and by VPN. Um, so China has to innovate in environment, in, in healthcare. You know, I, I'm in, in cancer, in the business of cancer. And China, unfortunately, is now the biggest cancer market with 5 million new cancer patients diagnosed every year and 3, 3 million people die. China has to solve that pro problem. And you know, here we have precision medicine initiative in the US. Obama invested 250 million and China launched a year after investing nine billion to, to build China into a center of precision medicine. That's, those numbers are huge and I know Risha you've looked at the amount of investment China's putting into R&D to try to innovate, to try to make itself a more innovative economy, but you've also done some interviews with entrepreneurs in China talking about barriers to this. Uh, sure. I'm very happy to, I, I thought before I came, I thought I'm very optimistic because economists tend to be optimistic. <laughs> but <laughs> after hearing the opinions from business world, I, I found out <laughs> I'm maybe too pessimistic. <laughs> because, uh, this, this is the more pessimistic half. <laughs> yeah, uh, so, you know, the gen so in the it's true that in this uh, service, especially IT service uh, field, China is uh, making a lot of progress. But a lot of, when a lot of people talk about innovation in China, they think a lot about the manufacturing sector. Do we see car brand? Do we see some uh, TV brand? No, and the answer is really not very well known uh, brand from China. That's true. Uh, and Chinese government really wants to you know, move to the frontier. Uh, so if you look at the number, just like R&D spending accounts for about 2% of GDP uh, each year. Just give you a benchmark, this is higher than the average OECD spending, uh, um, like in terms of share of their GDP. But China is still much poorer than the average OECD country. So China is clearly an overachiever in this sense. It's invested a lot in R&D, but that's only input, right? Then how could you, could you measure output? Typically, people measure this with patents. And if you look at the patents data, China also doing super well, like the growth is the, the patents uh, grants, like uh, the pa number of patents increase at about 20% a year, which just amazing. Even if you look mm -hmm. at the mm -hmm. patents, yeah. you know, some people c like complain about the crappiness of the patents in China. Then you can look at the number of patents applied uh, in, you know, in the US by the Chinese firm. It's still small if you look at the levels, but if you look at the growth rate, it's still very high, you know, a double digit. So all this suggests all oh, seems to be very good uh, innovation, but you know, ultimately why do we care about innovation? Uh, we care it because we think it might contribute to perform productivity. Then many scholars trying to look at you know, what's the contribution of this innovation to China's productivity, then the answer is much less clear. It seems not you know, contribute uh, much. Uh, so I, you know, I'm part of a team doing like uh, employer, a large-scale employer-employee survey in China uh, in the manufacturing sector. So the idea is to understand all these uh, challenges, especially the rising of labor costs that, that you know, hope to firms like face these challenges. Are they uh, use more, more robots or are they trying to innovate, etc. So innovation is a big uh, issue. We want to uncover more by these surveys. It will be multiple year survey, super large scale. So we had two pilot years in the past uh, two years. We will interview these owners. These are typical manufacturer producers. 
this is not so optimistic. What I get is often like some complaint, for example, an uh, owner of a, a factory which produced children's clothes. He complained that you know I can bear I couldn't make any design innovation because it's so easily copied by those on those on this online <laughs> platform. Uh, so it's so say actually now he tried to innovate in terms of the uh, new like new materials. So the hope is that all the children put on their clothes, then their parents could trace the GPS <laughs> so that they couldn't you know they wouldn't need to worry about. Uh, the law, you know, <laughs> losing their <laughs> children. But the <laughs> it's an interesting example because when I hear this, I have very mixed feelings. On the one hand, I feel China, China does have such a large of innovative group of entrepreneurs that could be very creative. But on the other hand, uh, man, you know, this innovation is kind of discouraged by too much computation. In general, we often think, oh, computation is good, you know, computation facilitates, facilitates uh, innovation. But in the case of China, this too much computation uh, together with this lack of property rights, right? You innovate, you wouldn't be protected. So actually, this discourages uh, innovation. So you see many, uh, you know, copy instead of innovating uh, things going yeah. on. Yeah. I would like to uh, come on that. Uh, I think Quite often, I, when I serve on panel, it seems sometimes there's a confusion between invention versus in, uh, innovation. innovation. Invention is you create something it didn't exist before, like electricity, like the light bulbs, right? Innovation is actually leverage what is already out there and put it together <coughs> as a bundle. So, so I think WeChat is an innovation, but it's not invention because each element yeah, already pre-existed. Yeah. Um, now, but in, in China, in terms of they have a lot of patents, but have not yet developed into mm -hmm. new innovative ideas. But in China, I think one thing I fully agree with Rishi is that is they have to shift from manufacturing to the service economy, like the US. So in that case, uh, we are just ahead of the curve. They are <coughs> experiencing these kind of problems. Labor costs are getting high and also aging problems because they have serious one-child policy and also people, people live longer. So the aging problems, so that's why the healthcare service is important mm -hmm. uh, in terms of uh, the online uh, platforms is important. But what do you do with 1.4 billion people mm -hmm. when they don't need to have physical work? That is a problem they have yet to solve. So in that case, mm -hmm. the road is not all rosy. They do have challenges uh, uh, on the way. So l l let me comment on innovation and, uh, and, and invention. Uh, so as economists, we think about incentives. And, and China wants to have a lot of innovation. Uh, they looked around, and what's the metric? The metric is patents. So they reward patents, and, uh, and so people respond. Well, it turns out that the patent laws in China say that if you have a teapot, there's a spout that's kind of at 45-degree angle, and you invent a new teapot that is 40-degree <laughs> angle, you can patent that. That's it. And so that's why they have a lot of patents, uh, but that is not meaningful in the same way as the number of patents in the US. So that's kind of one aspect, that there's institutional research, uh, and, and you do get some invention, and, 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 but it's not dynamic. But the, the flip side of this uh, is that China has very weak intellectual property laws. Right? So if you invent something, you're guaranteed that somebody's going to reverse engineer it before long, and you're not going to get a rate of return. So what people do invent are things that they can continually improve and improve rapidly mm -hmm. because they don't even bother to file a patent on this. Mm -hmm. right? that's, that's a worthless exercise. They invent something, and as soon as somebody starts to copy it, they bring the next one out, and they bring the next one out. And so you've got this one sector that's really focused on those kinds of activities where you can have uh, very rapid increases in, in uh, product type or, or, or in product functionality and kind of the rest that's got these uh, misaligned incentives. I fully agree with Jerry in terms of rapid innovations because that's what I observe in China. I visited uh, many uh, companies. Uh, they don't do what Germany or US would do cross all the T dot or the I before you start your launch your first product. They have lean startups. You learn by doing 
learning by doing, doing by learning. So basically, that is actually they have rapid uh, prototypes, rapid product introduction, very fast. So in the case, by the time you realize copy them, they already move to something else. So that is uh, the, the, the 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 culture in China. If you think about what what is driving force, what are the driving force for China to develop so rapidly within 40 years? I think there are four factors. In business school, we call four C. <laughs> the first C is the culture. They are entrepreneurs before the Communist Party came in. So actually, they've been trading for long, for thousands of years. The culture is there. Second, they have the customers because the, the, the population has rise up. Now that we have uh, in China, they're more middle class than the U.S. population. And third is uh, the, uh, the capabilities. Before, they don't have universities were closed for 10 years during Cultural Revolution. And now, in China alone, they produce 500,000 STEM graduates, science and engineering technology students. U.S. produce 50,000. What they have produced 10 times. The capability is there. Fourth, they're flush with cash. As uh, Richard pointed out, Chinese, uh, they, because they learned from the past, they, are, they also worry about the rainy days. And also credit cards, credit is not easily accessible. They don't borrow money as fiercely as Americans, right? So they save a lot of money. So the cash is there. So 4C, cash, capabilities, culture, and customers. All these driving force become a perfect storm for all these rapid innovations because they can do it. Because there's so many students, someone, one from four billion people. I said, how can I beat them? There's always someone come up with something incremental. They don't care about a really uh, big leap. Just incremental, they can make quick money and then move on to the next one. So that's how they started the entire platform of uh, WeChat and Alibaba. It started something small, they keep on adding, adding things to it, become a really amazing uh, platform. And on the IP protection front, because you know, I, I work for, from China, working for large US companies, the biggest fear of those companies going to China is IP protection. And sometimes I just tell them, hey, you just prepared to lose some of your IP. Don't share your core IP or co compartmentize the, the, the very core procedures. So you minimize that risk of getting copied, but be prepared you will get copied at some point, to some extent. But do you think and that's going to change? Like, do you think we're going to see, in the next five or 10 years, stronger <laughs> IP protections? Are we going to see more free flow of information? Are we going to see a reduction of forced technology transfers? All these things that foreign companies complain make it unattractive or hard to do business in China. Do you think China might see it its own interest to change? Uh, yeah, I, so I'm on the optimistic side mm -hmm. uh, because, for one, you know, some, some really We'll hear from the pessimists in a second. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> 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 I'm in business, so I have extreme. to be optimistic. Yeah. No, uh, there, there are some. Uh, I think that now China is realizing that after innovation, they need to be a little bit more to differentiate the products because otherwise they realize that selling a cheap product is not going to elevate the reputation in China is not going to really grow the economy indefinitely. Mm -hmm. That's why they need a more, a really more advanced technology. Give you one example. The largest drone, not the military drone, the commercial drone, mm -hmm. is made in China, DFG. is a DJI. DJI, DJI it's actually, they have patents. Then I visit this, the, the companies. I said, what's the big deal? Just a few blades <laughs> swirling around to fly. They say no, they do have patent technology. They are the first one, the, the drone, that even US, all, all the studios use it, is to fly the drone horizontally. Vertically, many drones can do the same thing. Horizontally, when you do the camera, stabilize the camera, that is difficult to do with uh, different motors going uh, simultaneously. So they do have patents, they do have technology. So I think that now they realize they need to protect their own technology. Exactly. So in that case, they have to earn the respect to become the leader in the future. But I think for drugs, yeah. uh, these kind of companies, if they, mm -hmm. they have to anticipate that some patent will be copied, 
but they have to move faster. They have to move faster. That's exactly what I want to say. It's if you don't, if you fear about going to the Chinese government, uh, going to the Chinese market, you will lose the entire market. You should move faster. Do a joint venture so your interest is aligned with your Chinese partner. So you you move fast. You get market share fast. It's very rare that Chinese companies would copy an IP and then go back to the U.S. market to take over the U.S. market. So together, you with your Chinese partner, you actually move fast to be to be the leader in that segment in China. And also I fully agree that China, with the innovation of Chinese companies, you have to, Chinese companies also have to protect their own IP. And there are actually uh, around 110,000 IP uh, lawsuits and cases being filed in China for last one year, which, you know, thir the, the number of that in US is 13% of that in China. So I'm going to take a contrarian view here. Okay, <laughs> and then we're going to open up to questions, but uh, go ahead. Which is, so if, if China really is setting the rules for, uh, I mean, they, they may strengthen IT protection for Chinese companies within China, but if they're really setting the rules for the one belt, one road countries, these are countries that have very weak IP protection and are, are not that interested in, in strengthening it. The US has been really the country that has been pushing this, the US and, and, and the EU. If the US and EU are not setting the rules, and we're talking about the Asia-Africa market, uh, I don't think that China really has that much of an interest in improving international protection of IP. They're used to moving fast. They're used to uh, operating in an environment where IP protection is very weak. And what's their incentive? Their incentive to, to tighten it has been thus far uh, American and European companies saying we're not coming in unless we can protect at least some of our IP. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm not so sure that this is going to get better from our framework or our, our definition of it. I'm and more optimistic than, than Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> because this go goes back to the, our original question. China now, they have a China Dream initiative. The China Dream is that they want to be recognized and be respected as a leader. In order to be respected as a leader, they have to tighten up the IP rules, if they want I, to. I, I think that's our perspective, yeah. but maybe not theirs. Maybe not theirs, but if they really want to, to be recognized as a leader mm -hmm. in the world, they need to take actually tighten the IP laws uh, such that they earn respect. And okay. on Alibaba, Huawei, they all have a huge team of IP lawyers and they're on IP law enforcement. All right, we're going to cut it off here, and we're going to let the audience ask you guys some questions. One thing that you hear a lot is that the, U the Chinese government the, in the PRI still has control of 50% of all these corporations, especially the large corporations. So do they also own 50% of the small businesses, or is it just the large multinational companies that they own 50% of? And what impact does government ownership have on innovation and development? And then the whole issue of uh, economic dominance. It was the British pound that was reserve currency up until 1944, until Bretton Woods. Then it's been the US dollar since then. And how could it become the Chinese yuan if there aren't free flows of capital allowed by the Chinese government? So in, in my answer to the first question, uh, I said don't mistake the Chinese economy for a capitalist economy, uh, because I think you're, you're exactly right. Uh, the question of how much of Chinese companies are owned by the Chinese government, nobody knows. Uh, uh, thought, thought to be I a, thought we, we know pretty clearly. <laughs> we, we know the SOEs, but the ones that are kind of through the back door, uh, we don't. But what's, what's, what's really important, I think, to realize is that uh, that that Chinese companies that are acting in the market system are allowed to do that so long as the results that come out are consistent with Chinese Communist Party policy, if they achieve that goal. If they don't, you see those companies disappear. So uh, the Chinese government or, has... Or their CEOs disappear. Um, that too. Yeah. So, uh, so, so, the, so I, I mean, don't, don't mistake Xi Jinping for uh, Adam Smith. Uh, the, <laughs> there's a world of difference, uh, and, and he's very much a, a Marxist, and, and 
and he has said that. Uh, but China realizes that the market system, coupled with what they're doing, not a U.S. market system, uh, works for them. That's what that's that's what they want. So, uh, so you don't have to own a company if you can just control what it does and make sure that it's moving in the direction that you want the economy to go in. But I, I think lately there have been some very interesting and some would say troubling moves by Chinese government. I mean, we've seen them talk about taking stakes in high-tech companies like Alibaba and Tencent. Mm -hmm. We've seen them block moves by companies like Wanda that wants mm -hmm. to expand internationally, invest more in the U.S. I mean, really taking very aggressive stance right. in terms of controlling private companies. And I think the jury's sort of still out on where mm -hmm. this is going. And you f feel like it's sort of, you know, one step forward, two steps back, or two steps forward, one step back. Yeah. I fully agree. As Jerry pointed out and you pointed out, that China is not a free market economy. It's a planned economy. So what Julie pointed out in terms of uh, Chinese government's investment in WeChat or Alibaba is partly because they would like to have some form of control uh, of uh, social media, of uh, P2P lending. Because right now, I think the P2P lending is not controlled. Uh, if mm -hmm. not done properly, uh, there's a fear of money laundering. So I think that there are reasons why the Chinese government need to keep a tap on certain things. So it's a, it's a planned economy. Mm -hmm. I have two brief questions that build on the exchange just now. Can China really become a global leader when it's not an open society? And the second question is, can China become, really become a global leader in innovation when, it, when it's relying on state-owned companies? Uh, Xi Jinping has made clear that the state-owned companies will be, the, will be the leading edge of the Chinese economy. Let me, well, let, let, me, let me take this, the second question. The, the, the four great inventions uh, that we heard about earlier, that was not in a market economy. Uh, you know, that was in, in a feudal economy. So you don't need a market economy to be a leader in innovation. You just need the right conditions for it, the right incentives for it. Um, it right, would you agree? Yeah. Oh, how can the, the, the first question was, how, how do you become a... Well, can uh, you be a leader can without you be a leader? being an open, without being an open... Yeah, know, so I would say society. that they're not going to be a leader in setting the rules of, engage, of international engagement in the EU or in NAFTA if we still have it around. Uh, but in the part of the world where they're most interested, which is Asia and Africa, they do really have the possibility of doing that. Now, uh, TPP is apparently going forward because those countries don't want to see that, and Japan is starting to step up and, and take a lead in that. So it remains to be seen, but certainly China has that as a, their objective. Yeah, I would like to come on that to the first question. Can China become a global leader? Uh, I think that's not so simple. I think that would take a long time. Uh, here's my, my view about Chinese culture. Uh, you look at uh, the success, recent success of uh, Alibaba, WeChat, and all this. It's only a very recent phenomenon. But Chinese is very good in starting up a business. They're well known for that. But they are not very good in succession planning. That's why there's a saying in Chinese that is, the rich cannot pass after three generations. <laughs> They're very good. They're first, in terms of starting a business, maintain the business. The third generation use ruin the business. <laughs> so because they don't have the check and balance, because they don't believe in the succession planning, so that's why the, even the government, even all these uh, state-owned enterprises, even all these startups, they don't have a system put in place. Unlike uh, United States, a much younger country, so we have a democratic system set up, if something happened to our presidents, the country will continue. If something happened to the vice presidents, uh, the country will continue, as if nothing happened. But not in China, because it's really centralized plans, centralized control. So if the core is not done or not act properly, uh, things can collapse. So even as big as Alibaba, 
What happened after Jack Ma? No one knows. So that's why the, I think that that is the biggest fear. Right now, they have not been able to crack that fundamental problems. Through history, Chinese companies is not good in sustaining a long-term business. That's why, as Rishi pointed out, there's no Chinese brands. The better-known brand is <laughs> Lenovo. They bought IBM, right? So I think that is still a long way to go. I, I feel a bit uneasy to make this claim because uh, it's, after all, Chinese only you know, Chinese firms existence like not more than 50 years. So it's a bit, uh, I, I, you know, to talk about three generations. Uh, and, and this kind of central planned uh, control, uh, central controlled uh, firms clearly has their problems. You know, some of these are political, uh, you know, connection becomes super important, mislocation of resources. But in terms of replace uh, CEOs, I think they have very clever strategies. And, and you, know, you look at look, some CEO because they, they were caught because of some corruption scandal, but it, it doesn't affect the firm that much because there's, I think the Communist Party has a pretty, I'm not like defending the Communist Party, I think they have a, a smart strategy of have this candidate pool to replace these people, right? Thinking about this anti-corruption campaign, how could they replace these CEOs? Uh, th that said, I, I, I can't, you know, I just, as economists, we just feel a little bit uneasy to blame Chinese culture is bad for, for succession because after all, you know, there's not, not, not so long time period for Chinese firms to have three generation yet. Uh, so Next I'm question. I want uh, sorry, and I want, I think just to take us a little bit a higher level and, and uh, not just talking about business, economic, military power, what is global leader? It's not easy to be a leader. Leader pays cost for other people so the world can move to a better place altogether. Uh, Trump was visiting China and uh, very famously Trump says, I don't blame China. After all, who can blame a country for taking advantage of other country for the benefit of its own citizen? Uh, <laughs> no matter what country is doing that, would that be a global leader? Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, whether it's US, whether it's China, if you do that, does that count you as a global leader? Maybe not, right? Um, I, I think we're in such a complex world. We're way past that Cold War era where you're just competing on GDP, economic power, um, on military power, on your hard and software, uh, soft power that's so quantifiable. In such a complex world, I think there's no one world leader and other pack follow system. It's a multilateral leadership system that we all collaborate together to move the world faster. I fully agree with you because I think the world is, no lo is connected. Before, we thought that the, the because of transportation, language barriers, cultural differences, now the world is really, many countries, they're all connected. Now we're actually beyond connectivity. It's really about dependency. For example, as Jerry pointed out, China, actually, the arable land is very small. They rely on other countries to provide food, important food. They need right? our chicken feed. Absolutely. So the same, at the same time, that other countries also rely on China's uh, the production and later on maybe in terms of mobile technologies. So I think the whole world is interdependent. So in the case, what does it mean to be a leader, the single leader? I think that is difficult to define. Um, from my understanding, the planned economy cannot continue um, forever. Uh, so to what degree do we think that in the next 20 years that economic forces will force the Chinese economy to open up? some more capitalistic tendencies. Jerry. Okay. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I don't know that we have good evidence that a planned economy can't continue indefinitely. Uh, a planned economy allocates resources in a different way than a market economy. So, uh, most economists will tell you that it will generate fewer economic goods and services per capita, but that doesn't mean that it can't continue that way so, so long as the citizens are okay with that. Uh, so, um, you, you know, I'm always amused that uh, uh, Gordon Chang, who wrote, is it two decades ago now, The Coming Collapse of China? China. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a book everyone should he read before going to China. It, he didn't say when it was coming, he just <laughs> said it was coming. Right. <laughs> Sort of like the clock that, uh, that is broken. It's going to tell the time eventually. Uh, 
and, 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 and yeah, twice, twice a day. Uh, and, and, and we, you know, we don't, we just don't see that. I think China is um, politically in a position today where they can continue for quite a long time with the kind of system that they have. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't look for that to happen. I also agree with Jerry because I think you look at uh, China right now, uh, the, the income inequality is tremendous. And under the planned economy, at least it's the Chinese government can allocate resource to, from the rich to the poor. So now uh, President Xi just mentioned it during the, mm -hmm. the Congress party. So I think that the planned economy has one advantage of that. It's a purely market-driven economy. It could be a danger to unstable uh, the, the, the livelihood of many citizens. So I think that in the foreseeable time frame, I think that this kind of combination mm -hmm. in China is, is not exactly a plan, it's mm -hmm. kind of hybrid, shall I say. It's a plan, some are planned, some are, uh, are actually allow entrepreneurship. So for example, give one example. Uh, in Europe, they tried to ban uh, Uber, mm -hmm. okay? Chinese governments, they were not sure about that because they want to promote innovation. So that's why there's a sudden this year, they allowed both coexist, the taxis and uh, DD. Mm -hmm. uh, which is, uh, uh, they bought the share from Uber. Mm -hmm. So basically, uh, they actually allow them to coexist such that, but in return, they want to make sure they cannot charge below cost, no dumping, and also the drivers must have a local, must be local residents and with a three-year driving record. So they allow both coexist such, such that the taxi driver continues to earn a living, and also they allow the innovative companies to come in to also provide additional value at the services. So it's kind of hybrid. So I think they found that this kind of hybrid mode uh, is more stable. Yeah, I also I completely agree with both of you. It's not a pure planned economy. Just give you know think about pers everything is relative and perspective. I mean, it's not um, North Korea style <laughs> economy. <laughs> and China, you know, the, the real planned economy is is its government decide all the economic decision for you, including allocate food. That's where that's when when. I and my parents grew up. There's even no freedom to purchase goods. Just there's not enough of them. I, I think for me that and that was the pure form of planned economy. And since the 1940 years ago, there are uh, much more market principles being introduced into China. Yes, China still have capital flow, uh, capital control. China's you know uh, compared to a pure. Western form, um, your classic economic model, yes, China is not 100% um, market economy yet, but I think compared to 40 years ago, 50 years ago, it made uh, the percentage of that market economy has significantly increased and the control of the government has dropped. But would the government control be ever gone and be 0%? I, I don't know. I don't think so. Well, uh, she's chief uh, intellectual advisor, has publicly rejected the U.S. model as mm -hmm. inappropriate for China. Right. So I, I think at least for the next five years, that's yes. the answer. Well, <laughs> well, we'll check back in in five years. <laughs> I'm afraid we do have to end tonight's conversation up on stage. But before we do end, I want to thank, uh, on behalf of Zocola Public Square, I want to thank our co-presenter tonight, the UCLA Anderson School of Management, for making this event possible, and also our friends at the Japanese American National Museum for having us in their beautiful space here in downtown Los Angeles. I also want to thank you all for joining us tonight. I hope you'll stick around because this conversation is going to continue just outside in the lobby during our reception right down the hall from the auditorium. Um, and finally, of course, please join me in giving a big, big round of applause to our panelists this evening. Thank you.